Hi, I'm Whitney, and this is Get Lit, and today we are wrapping up the ancient Mesopotamian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh. So Gilgamesh's best friend, Enkidu, has died, and Gilgamesh, who is now scared because he realizes he's going to die, is going on a journey to visit the only survivors of the historical Great Flood. After days of journeying, Gilgamesh reaches Mount Mashu, whose gates are guarded by a male and female scorpion being. The man scorpion asks Gilgamesh what the hell he's doing there. Gilgamesh responds that he's on his way to visit Utnapishtim and talk to him about death and life. The man scorpion tells Gilgamesh that no mortal man has ever been able to cross through the dark mountains. Somehow Gilgamesh convinces the scorpion beings to let him through the gates. No one knows how because those lines are supposedly missing. I say supposedly because I have a sneaking suspicion that, while trying to write Gilgamesh's great argument, the author realized that Gil was far too much of a whiny, self-absorbed idiot to ever convince these great and human beasts that he was strong and worthy enough to cross the mountain. So they conveniently lost those lines and instead jumped right into the good stuff. I can't prove this theory, but I believe very strongly in it. Gilgamesh starts crossing the mountain, and it is indeed dark as a well digger's ass. He can't see what lies ahead nor behind. But Gil just keeps on trucking, and he eventually sees the light at the end of the mountain. When he emerges, he is in a beautiful garden filled with foliage and fruit, and in the distance he can see the ocean. So nobody before Gilgamesh could just keep walking in a straight line? What the hell was wrong with these ancient Mesopotamians? Suduri, an alewife who lives by the ocean shore, sees a bedraggled man in the distance. Not realizing that this hot mesh is actually God King Gilgamesh, she says to herself, that fellow is surely a murderer, yes, but mainly of trees, and immediately bolts her gates and locks her doors. This is a good plan in any case, because Gilgamesh would probably be the most annoying houseguest ever. Gilgamesh comforts Suduri and eases her fears by gently saying, if you do not let me in, I will break your door and smash the lock. Gil maybe needs some lessons on appropriate social interactions with women who live alone. Gilgamesh goes on to tell Suduri that he is the great and wonderful Gilgamesh who killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven and who slew lions in the mountain passes. Okay, if I recall correctly, the whole lion slaying thing only happened in a dream Gilgamesh had, but whatever. Glory days will pass you by and all that. Gilgamesh fails to mention that he did all of this under Shamash's protection while holding hands with Enkidu. Suduri is not buying it. She questions Gilgamesh on why he looks so gross and unkinglike. Gilgamesh replies that of course he looks like shit, seeing as how his best friend recently dreamed himself to death. This prompts him to get all maudlin and weepy again as he recounts the pain he felt after Enkidu's death. He tells Suduri that he would not allow him to be buried until a maggot fell out of his nose. Oh, Gilgamesh... You're such a horrible, disgusting human being. Staying true to his narcissistic values, Gilgamesh proceeds to make Enkidu's death all about Gilgamesh, whining to Siduri that his friend's death made him begin to fear death. Now he's searching for Udanapishtims and his wife, the only survivors of the Great Flood, in hopes of learning the secret to immortality. Gilgamesh asks Sidori how to get to Udanapishtim's house, saying he will either cross the sea or roam through the wilderness to get there. The wilderness, recognizing a tree hater when it sees one, silently prays, please, please cross the sea instead. Suduri tells Gil that no one except the sun god Shamash himself has ever crossed the sea, since it contains the poisonous waters of death that only Udanap 
pished him. <laughs> Udana pished him. Sanduri tells Gil that no one except the sun god Shamash himself has ever crossed the sea, since it contains the poisonous waters of death that only Udanapishtim's boatman, Urshanabi, knows how to navigate. Then wouldn't that mean Urshanabi has also crossed the sea? Goddamn gods always taking all the credit. Also, these people really need to change their names to something easier to say. I'm just going to call Udanapishtim Tim from now on. Siduri tries to talk Gilgamesh out of undertaking this perilous journey, but eventually she realizes that Gilgamesh is not to be dissuaded, primarily because he is only slightly smarter than a box of hair. She gives Gilgamesh directions to Urshanabi's house deep in the forest, where Urshanabi guards the stone things. When Gilgamesh finds the boatman's house, he sees the stone things and decides that the smartest course of action is to kill them all. Somewhere, a patrologist weeps. Just as Sidori did earlier, Urshanabi asks Gilgamesh why he looks like shit on toast. And just as before, Gilgamesh launches into his spiel about Inkadu, blah blah, maggot nose, blah blah, egomaniac, having an existential crisis, blah blah. He demands that Urshanabi hand over the markers that show the way to Tim's house. Urshanabi tells Gilgamesh that he can't do anything for him at the moment, since the stone things that Gilgamesh mindlessly slaughtered were imperative to the operation of Urshanabi's boat. Doh. Urshanabi is a regular Mesopotamian MacGyver, though, and he tells Gilgamesh to cut down 300 punting poles and bring them to the boat. Gilgamesh is 100% behind this idea, since it means that he gets to cut down more trees. Urshanabi gets his boat working, and the two set sail on the treacherous sea. On the third day, they reach the waters of death. Urshanabi tells Gilgamesh to use the punting poles to get them across and he warns Gil to not even let his hands pass over the poisonous waters. Somehow, Gilgamesh manages not to kill himself, but he does break all of the punting poles as he propels the boat across the water. When the last pole breaks, Gilgamesh takes off the animal skin that he's wearing and uses it as a sail. Meanwhile, an old man is standing on shore gazing at the ship. He wonders to himself, why are the stone things of the boat smashed to pieces? And why is someone not its master sailing on it? Presumably, he also adds, and why is this man not wearing any clothes? Once Urshanabi and Gilgamesh arrive, the old man asks Gil to identify himself. He then asks why Gilgamesh looks like death warmed over, and we are treated for the third fucking time to Gilgamesh's speech about Enkidu's death, the maggot, etc. At this point, Gilgamesh should just get a t-shirt that says, tell me how to not die. The old man asks Gilgamesh why the hell he's so scared of death, since it's natural for everything on earth. He reminds Gil that all humans are in the same boat, destined by the gods to die. That's trial, man, but Gilgamesh isn't the type to dwell on other people's feelings and fears. Gilgamesh has a very Gilgamesh-centric worldview. Gilgamesh realizes that the old man with whom he is conversing is, in fact, the immortal survivor of the Great Flood, Tim. Well, no shit, Sherlock. He and his wife are the only people who live there, which is the whole reason why you came to this place. Gilgamesh is amazed because Tim looks no different from any other normal doomed-to-die human being. You were expecting maybe a forehead tattoo that said, I am immortal and you're not, neener neener? Gilgamesh adds that he came here with the intention of fighting Tim, but now his arm lies useless over the old man. What genius thinks it's a good idea to fight an immortal? Probably same friggin' genius who kills trees for no good reason and insults war goddesses. 
Gilgamesh may be the dumbest literary protagonist ever, and I'm including Lenny from Of Mice and Them. Tim tells Gil that he will reveal the secret of the gods. It turns out the gods have decided to let Gilgamesh live forever because his stupidity entertains them so much. Oh wait, no. No, the big secret is just the story of the Great Flood. Before we get into Tim's epic tale, uh, a little reminder about flood myths. I'll make this short. The first recorded flood myth is from Sumeria, Eridu Genesis, that dates to the 18th century BCE. Shortly after came an Akkadian epic about Atrahasis, a king of Shuruppak, an ancient Sumerian city. It's from this epic that the authors of Gilgamesh basically plagiarize the flood story that Tim recounts. So, Tim has the mic now, and he drops some knowledge on Gilgamesh. Many years ago, Tim lived with his family in Shuruppak, located on the banks of the Euphrates. Well, when you build a city right smack beside a huge river, you're really just asking for a great flood or two now, aren't you? Anyway, one day the great gods had a council and decided to destroy the world. Why? Well, Tim doesn't explain. Apparently, this is just the kind of thing that great gods do. In the epic of Atrahasis, the reason for the flood is human overpopulation. One would think that so-called great gods could have invented contraception instead. The gods were all sworn to secrecy about this plan, but Enki, who helped create humans, had a soft spot for his creations and decided to warn someone about the flood. That someone happened to be Tim. Enki told Tim to tear down his house and build a boat and to make all living beings go up into the boat. Tim was fine with that plan, but wondered what he should tell the fine citizens of Shuruppak. Enki gave him a cover story. Enlil had rejected Tim, and now Tim was going to live with Enki, who had rained down abundance upon everyone who tagged along. Wait, did Enki just make a pun? No wonder his nickname is the Clever Prince. So Tim built the ship, and for whatever reason feels compelled to tell Gilgamesh the exact dimensions while recounting his story. I guess in case Gil ever finds himself needing to construct a boat to save all humanity. Not that Gil would do that, although he would appreciate the chance to commit more mass foricide. Tim kept his construction crew happy by giving them ale, beer, and wine so they could make a party like the New Year's Festival. Ain't no party like an art building party! I can't help but question the structural integrity of a huge ship built on a tight schedule by drunk people. Once the boat was completed, Tim loaded up all the living beings, from his family and the construction crew to all the beasts and animals of the field. That's going to be one stinky, befouled boat. Shamash, getting in on the action, promised to rain down loaves of bread and wheat before the flood began. I would think that a deluge of bread loaves might be more dangerous than rain, but... Mm. After the promised rain of carbohydrates, the real flooding began and totally fucked the city up. The gods got scared and cowered like dogs crouching by the outer wall of a news heaven. You know it's a bad scene when even the great gods are hauling ass out of there. They realize that they destroyed the very humanity that they lovingly created. Um, duh? What did you think the result was going to be? Wasn't this your whole point? See kids, this is what happens when you just rush into action without a well-defined plan. The torrential rain continued for six days and seven nights. Coincidentally, the same amount of time for which Enkidu and Shamhat had sex, which was probably also a very wet week. Finally, the sea calmed. Tim emerged from the safety of his sealed boat and cried when he saw that the unfortunate people who missed the boat had turned to clay. The boat was stranded on Mount Nimush for six days. On the seventh day, Tim released a dove, which came back. Next, he released a swallow and a raven, with the same result. 
and a truly poignant representation of absolute desperation, Tim then sent out everything in all directions. He also sacrificed a sheep and burned incense in the hopes of appeasing the gods. I'm assuming the incense is to mask the stench of a disemboweled ruminant. Enlil showed up majorly pissed off, asking his fellow gods, where did a living being escape? No man was to survive the annihilation. Enlil is kind of a dick. Ninurta, the god of war and agriculture, told Enlil it must have been Enki who saved the people and animals, since Enki knows every machination. Gula, a goddess of healing, took the heat off Enki by calling Enlil out for suggesting the great flood in the first place. How, how could you bring about a flood without consideration? Charge the violation to the violator. Charge the offense to the offender. But be compassionate, lest mankind be cut off. Be patient, lest they be killed. Moved by the goddess's heartfelt speech, Enlil blessed him and his wife. He granted them both immortality and settled them at the mouth of the rivers to live. Apparently taking pity on our inept god-king, or perhaps merely bored because he doesn't get a lot of visitors, Tim offers Gilgamesh a chance at immortality. All Gilgamesh has to do is stay awake for six days and seven nights, the exact length of both the Great Flood and Enkidu's marathon sex session with Shamhat. I'm sensing a pattern here. So now that Gilgamesh has finally come within reach of the object of his obsession, what do you think he does next? A. Stays awake for the requisite six days and seven nights, achieving immortality. B. Stays awake for six days, but then falls asleep on the seventh night, just barely missing his chance at eternal life. C. Stays awake for six days and seven nights, but then is denied immortality by the gods on account of being annoying. D. Falls asleep as soon as he sits down. If you picked A or B, then you obviously have not been paying attention to Gilgamesh's lameness. If you picked C, well, that's understandable, but also wrong. Because, of course, our fearless dumbass goes lights out the literal second his ass hits the ground. Even a narcoleptic cat can stay awake longer than that. Tim's wife, feeling sorry for the obviously challenged Gilgamesh, tells Tim to just wake Gil up and send him on his way home. Tim, however, doesn't trust Gilgamesh, which is a good call. He tells his wife to bake a loaf of bread each day and stack the loaves by Gil's head and to mark the wall for each day that Gil sleeps. By the end of the seventh night, most of the bread is in various stages of mold and decay, as is Gilgamesh. Tim shakes the snoozing god-king awake, and immediately Gil goes into the old I-was-just-resting-my-eyes routine. He claims that Tim touched him at the very moment sleep was pouring over him. Tim is like, oh, hell no, just look at these loaves of bread, Rip Van Winkle. Confronted with incontrovertible proof of his failure, Gilgamesh begins to wail like a banshee about his lost chance at eternal life. Dumbass, you have no one to blame but yourself. Gilgamesh asks Tim what he should do now that wherever he sets foot there too is death. Instead of saying, not my problem, which is what I would have done, Tim tells his boatman, Urshanabi, to take Gil to the washing place and get him all cleaned up to go back home. Instead of saying, shove it, old man, let this douchebag take care of himself, which is what I would have done, Urshanabi complies. Before Urshanabi and Gilgamesh sail off into the sunset, Tim's wife urges Tim to at least give Gil a little something so that he can return to his land with honor. Why? What has Gilgamesh ever done with honor? He spent his entire epic raping virgin brides, killing trees and rocks for no good reason, having wet dreams about axes, whining about death, 
hanging out with his dead maggoty friend, lying about his exploits, crying to his mommy, sleeping for 156 straight hours, and basically fucking up in every possible way. He is quite the epic hero. Tim acquiesces to his wife, after all he has to live with her for all eternity, and tells Gilgamesh about a box-thorn-like plant that grows at the bottom of the sea. This plant will make Gilgamesh a young man again. Gilgamesh attaches heavy stones to his feet and sinks down to the seafloor. Unfortunately, he does not drown, but rather succeeds in acquiring the plant. Gilgamesh tells Urshanabi that he plans to test the plant on an old man in Uruk to see if it really works. What, did he think Tim was just fucking with him? Just eat the goddamn plant, Gilgamesh. After sailing 30 leagues, Gilgamesh and Urshanabi stop for the night on shore beside a spring. Gil lays the magical plant on the bank of the spring while he bathes. This proves to be a bad idea as a snake comes by and eats the plant. The snake then sloughs off its skin, presumably becoming a strapping young serpent again. Gilgamesh's life is like one never-ending Three's Company episode. When Gilgamesh realizes what had happened, he cries, of course, and bemoans the fact that he has not secured any good deed for himself, but done a great deed for the lion of the ground. I'm sure the lion of the ground appreciates the Gil, if that's any consolation. Urshanami and Gilgamesh continue their trip to Uruk, and upon reaching the banks of the city, Gilgamesh has a revelation. It's about damn time. As he praises the city to Urshanabi, he realizes that the human ingenuity that enabled this great city to be built will endure for centuries, and that the carvings and statues depicting Gilgamesh's adventures will ensure a kind of immortality. Also, losing Bill's character and beauty is only skin deep. Eat your veggies, kids. And that pretty much concludes the epic of Gilgamesh. There's a 12th tablet appended years later that contains a mystical poem in which some of Gilgamesh's possessions fall into the underworld and Enkidu volunteers to retrieve them, but becomes trapped in the underworld. Gil persuades uh, the god Enki to let Enkidu's spirit come visit, and Enkidu tells Gilgamesh that the underworld sucks, big surprise, but that the more mourners a person has upon his or her death, the better off that person will be. Words to live by, folks. So now that we've taken this epic journey around ancient Mesopotamia with our good buddy Gilgamesh, it's time to ask ourselves, what have we learned? For one thing, we've learned that defiling young women on their wedding day is probably not the best use of one's kingly birthright. We've learned that banging prostitutes is good therapy for what ails you. We've learned that you can't trust the gods because they might decide to destroy humanity out of the blue just because they're having a bad hair day. And we've learned that even a complete dumbass can become a renowned ruler and epic hero whose legend extends for millennia. On a more serious note, the Epic of Gilgamesh shows that a life spent worrying about one's own mortality is a life wasted. Gilgamesh cannot function as a king or even really as a person until he finally realizes that death is inevitable. There's a beauty to this acceptance of mortality. Once the worry over death is dealt with, people can appreciate life for the fleeting but meaningful journey that it is. Gilgamesh shows that this journey is best taken with a loved one. Together, Enkidu and Gilgamesh are able to accomplish more than either could have on his own. Their love for and trust in each other makes them stronger and, one could argue, makes each one a better person. Gilgamesh can never be fully unnarcissistized, but Enkidu helps pull some of his focus outwards. And although Enkidu winds up dead and in a shitty afterlife, he obviously enjoyed his time with Gilgamesh. 
There's a subtly sinister undercurrent that achieving great things in life can lead to a kind of immortality. We can't forget that for the vast majority of his epic, Gilgamesh is absolutely horrible. And yet, because of his status and power, he'll be remembered as a hero for millennia to come. He can portray himself as a great adventurer and a beloved king, even if he was actually a self-absorbed douchebag. Sure, King Gilgamesh can achieve a kind of immortality, but does the everyday human have that power? Then again, maybe it's less about the individual human being and more about human society in general. After all, it is the city of Uruk that will live on, not Gilgamesh. It is the works of art and technology and philosophy that endure, long after the names of the creators are forgotten. Remember that society, especially urban society, was considered the pinnacle of humanity in ancient Mesopotamia. The idea of society is very important in Gilgamesh. Enkidu cannot function in a meaningful role until he was brought into society by Shamhat. The problem that Enkidu was created to solve was Gilgamesh's abuse of every Uruk bride on her wedding day, rather than just one or two isolated actions against a named victim. Gilgamesh commits his atrocity against the entire Uruk society and its values and order. The story of the Great Flood showed the survival of human society despite superhuman attempts to utterly destroy it. In short, maybe what our ancient anonymous author, obviously a bloody commie, was trying to stress is the importance of human society and all of the things it has to offer an individual, like security, companionship, love, enduring works, and a sense of belonging. Even though we humans die, humanity lives on. And yeah, it continues to produce douchebags like Gilgamesh. But you know what? They're our douchebags, and we love them anyway. Suck on that, great gods. Thank you, and I really hope you enjoyed uh, this retelling, so to speak, of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Let me know what you think, and if you'd like to see another one. Thanks for listening.